0: mighty deeds, to use the phrase from chapter 63, verse 15, and to display his zeal. He's petitioning the God of Israel to act on behalf of Israel, to bring a revival to an Israel that Isaiah knows is utterly undeserving of God's blessing. In our passage today, verses 8 through 12 of chapter 64, Isaiah completes his prayer the passage reads like this, But now, O Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Yahweh. No, remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now. All of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? In this passage, the prophet is speaking of the unimaginable. He's speaking of the things that are unthinkable. The notion that the holy city, Jerusalem itself, would be burned with fire would be destroyed and that the temple would be profaned by pagans is something that was unthinkable to Isaiah's readers at least to the initial ones not to the future generations that would read this passage. The event of the destruction of Israel and the profaning and destruction of the temple is something that is so cataclysmic to the history of Israel but I think it's is a country boy he lives he, he is from lives and is from a small town a small village called Maresh which is in the western part of Israel close to Philistia where the Philistines were from the other prophet that is kind of um, uh, in this setting is the prophet Jonah Jonah immediately precedes Micah that's when Jonah prophesied in the first part of the of the 700s B.C., and then uh, uh, Micah and Isaiah begin in the middle part of the 700s. Well, Jonah also is from the country. He's from the little town in the north called Gath Hefer. What I want you to see is that Isaiah is writing from the capital of the southern kingdom, a place that he has lived in his entire life, and God is revealing to to Isaiah, something that is horrifying to the prophet. Because the city that he has lived in, that he has known his entire life, will be annihilated. The city that David established three centuries earlier. The city that is the seat of the monarchy. The seat of the Davidic kings. The city that is itself described as the virgin daughter of God. The virgin daughter of Zion. That phrase, virgin daughter of Zion, really means the virgin daughter which is Zion. It's not that there's a daughter of Zion, it's that Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, is the daughter of God. And that title, virgin daughter of Zion, really is a title that is designed to communicate the protection of God. As a father protects his virgin daughter, that's the notion that is baked into that title, virgin daughter of Zion, the virgin daughter of which is under divine protection of her heavenly father, the city itself. The city was also called the city of God, or more specifically, the city of Yahweh Sabaoth, the city of the Lord of the armies. And this described the defense that the city was under, because the city was defended by the Lord of the armies, the one who is omnipotent. And the idea that Jerusalem would be destroyed, as described in Isaiah 64 and elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, but this notion that the city, the holy city of God, would be destroyed was unthinkable to Isaiah and also to the people of Jerusalem, to his initial audience. They had seen how God had miraculously defended the city, the Israelites had. The residents of Jerusalem had seen it with their own eyes They saw God's protection when the king of Assyria, a king who was dreaded and feared, Sennacherib, came to try and destroy the city. Sennacherib becomes king of Assyria, and his immediate predecessor was a king by the name of Shalmaneser V. Shalmaneser V destroyed the northern, the northern kingdom in 722. And when the Assyrians came to destroy a people, whether it was the northern kingdom or when they came to destroy the southern kingdom or the other many, many kingdoms that the Assyrians destroyed, it was a savage, brutal affair because when the Assyrians conquered a, 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 an army that was defeated or a city that they had laid siege to, there was no Geneva Convention. It was something that was brutal and they would they would torture the residents of the city. They would torture the conquered soldiers. It was a terrible, terrible scene. And so what happens with Isaiah is that he is in the city. He's in the city of Jerusalem. The king is a godly king by the name of King Hezekiah. And Sennacherib, just like his predecessor, Shalmaneser V, the, the Sennacherib comes in. To lay siege, in this case, not to the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, like Shalmaneser V had done, but Sennacherib, the next, almost said president, the next king of Assyria comes in, and this time he goes to the southern kingdom. He easily conquers all of the southern kingdom, all of Judah. Sennacherib does, except for the capital. The capital city, Jerusalem, he approaches, he surrounds, he begins his preparations to lay siege. And of course, everyone within the walls, the prophet Isaiah, the king Hezekiah, who's responsible to protect the city, and he knows it's his head if the Assyrians are merciful. Right? The merciful way to execute someone was to decapitate them. As gross and gruesome as that was, it was immediate. Hezekiah hopes that if the Assyrians come in, that they will merely decapitate him quickly. He is terrified. The people of Jerusalem are terrified. And the prophet Isaiah must have been fearful as well. This is the scene that we get to when we see 2 Kings chapter 19. Please turn there in your Bibles. The 2 Kings chapter 19. Sennacherib has surrounded Jerusalem, as I say. He is preparing to lay siege to the city. And the residents of jerusalem are terrified because of this horror that is approaching the city we see in second second kings chapter 19 a response a response from god to hezekiah king hezekiah of judah has prayed to god that god would deliver the people from the scourge of the assyrians And so now God sends an answer to King Hezekiah and he sends it through his prophet Isaiah. Look at 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 20. Verse 20 reads like this. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Meaning, I'm going to grant your prayer. It's not that I heard you and I'm going to blow you off. I'm going to, I'm going to not grant your prayer. I've heard you, and as part of that statement of, from God, I've heard you, is I'm going to give you what you're asking, which is deliverance. Look at verse 21 of 2 Kings chapter 19. This is the word that Yahweh has spoken against him. Isaiah is now telling the king the answer to the prayer that God has given Isaiah to deliver to the king. This is the word that Yahweh has spoken against him, against Sennacherib. She has despised you. In other words, Jerusalem has, the she here is Jerusalem. The you is Sennacherib. Jerusalem has despised Sennacherib. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 22. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? The question is directed to to Sennacherib, whom have you reproached and blasphemed, and against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Answer: Against the Holy One of Israel. Don't miss this. Don't miss the answer that God gave to Isaiah to deliver to Hezekiah to King Hezekiah, who is praying earnestly and fervently before the Lord for deliverance from this army. That has surrounded Jerusalem. The message that God gives Isaiah to deliver to the king, to King Hezekiah, is that God is with Jerusalem. God has linked himself, has attached himself to the city, so that when Sennacherib mocks and threatens Jerusalem, it's the same. It's tantamount to the Assyrian king mocking and threatening God himself. You see this phrase. In verse 22, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed God? You've reproached and blasphemed God because you have surrounded His city, the city of God. Then jump down to verse 27. But I, the I there is God, but I, God, know you're sitting down. God is still speaking of Sennacherib. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. The me is capitalized. God is still speaking Verse 28, Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance, because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by, w- by the way which you came. I'm going to send you back to Assyria. In other words, God says to Sennacherib. Jump to verse 32. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city, to Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. Remember how they would lay siege to a city is they would create a ramp, just like the Romans did at Masada for the Israelites in AD 70. They would, they would put a siege ramp up to get above the wall. And God is saying here, there these preparations that, that, that Sennacherib thinks that he's going to do He's already surrounded the city. The preparations, like laying a siege ramp, like shooting arrows or sending the soldiers into the city, none of that's going to happen. None of it. Verse 32. Therefore thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. But the way that he came, by the same he will return. And he shall not come to this city, declares Yahweh. And we get to verse 34. Look at verse 34. For I, I, Yahweh says, I will defend the city to save it for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant. For my servant David's sake. This is it. This is why God saves and delivers J- Jerusalem for his own name's sake. Because it is the city of God, the city of the Lord of the armies. Keep reading verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when, mo- and when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So before Sennacherib could even prepare to lay, lay, lay siege to the city, God killed 185,000 of his troops. This is a huge, huge slaughter. Number one, it's, a, it's, a, it's an army of hundreds of thousands. And so what God does is he decimates the army in one night. They're sleeping and they just don't wake up. 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. Keep, re- keep reading verse 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Verse 37, it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Shar-Ezer killed him with a sword. Who are they? They're his boys. They're the sons of Sennacherib who rose up and slaughtered their father. This is a miraculous event where 185,000 soldiers die in their sleep before they're about to lay siege to the city of God. Then God kills the man who had the audacity to come before his city in the first place, the powerful, mighty king of Assyria, and he does it in a horrible way by raising up his two sons to kill, kill him while he's worshiping in the temple of his pagan God. An event like this, a supernatural event like this, would not have been kept secret. Right? The people of Jerusalem knew of it well. The people of the entire region knew of it. This is why the audience of Isaiah thinks that Isaiah is off his rocker when he writes in chapter 64 that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. How can that be? We just saw God because the audience of chapter 64, at least the initial audience of the book of Isaiah, including chapter 64, is that audience. They're the people of Jerusalem who live, who are the contemporaries of Isaiah, who saw the 185,000 soldiers. Surely, surely, Sennacherib didn't take all those corpses home or didn't bury all those corpses. That is a huge, huge undertaking. His army has been decimated. He's got to get out of there quickly before the army of the Israelites, or if they teamed up with one of their allies, would come out and and slaughter the the remaining soldiers of the Assyrians. So the the residents of Jerusalem come out of the walls, they see 185,000 corpses on the hill, and they say, look, we're invincible. We're invincible. This is the attitude of the people of Jerusalem because of God's promise to defend Jerusalem and his history of doing so. Because of that, the readers of Isaiah would have thought he was totally crazy at least the initial readers, in saying that Jerusalem and that the temple would be destroyed. No foreign fighter had laid his foot within the gates, within the walls of Jerusalem, for that generation of the residents of Jerusalem, for their parents, for their grandparents, for their great-grandparents, for their great-great-grandparents, for their their great-great-great-grandparents, kind of like us. Right, No foreign fighter has laid his foot on this soil since the British were here in 1812. And so we, sadly, like the people of Jerusalem, think that we're invincible. But judgment always comes. Judgment always comes for rebellion against God. I'm not saying that we're Israel, of course. I'm saying the pattern, the pattern of getting cocky and getting overly confident of putting your confidence in something other than God is a pattern that we see today and that's what the Israelites were doing. They thought that they were untouchable. They thought that the city of Jerusalem, that the city of God was invincible, was untouchable. And the reason they thought that, ultimately, deep, deep, deep down inside, the reason they thought that they were untouchable is because of the temple. Because the temple was located in Jerusalem. The temple that Solomon had built Centuries earlier, remember Solomon was the king who came right after David. He was David's son. If Jerusalem was the city of God, then the temple was the house of God, was the abode of God. That's what the psalmist describes it as, right? The psalmist in Psalm 84 and in Psalm 132 describes the temple as the house of God, as the dwelling place of the mighty one of Jacob, as the dwelling place of Yahweh Sabaoth of the Lord of the armies. If the city is the city of the Lord of the armies, then the temple located in the city is the house, the dwelling place, the abode of the Lord of the armies. And so what happened for many Israelites is they got sucked into the cult, the cult of the temple. When I say cult, I use it in the sense of a cult can be an obsessive, or, a an either an obsessive or an excessive admiration of something or someone. Right? You ever heard of the phrase the cult of personality? Right? We 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 love the cult of personality in our culture because we're an idolatrous culture. The cult of personality, like for celebrities, the celebrity comes in and say, ah, the celebrity, or for politicians. Some politicians, people respond with this kind of cult way the Israelites were with respect to the temple. They had a cult not of personality of it but a cult of the structure with respect to the structure itself. What many Israelites thought is we got God. We got it. We got him in a box. We've got God's hands tied. He can't judge us no matter how much we disregard the ways of God no matter how much we ignore and we violate the lot of the law of God we have God's hands tied because he can't judge Jerusalem now it'd be another story if we left if we left lived in some other town if we lived in the northern kingdom or we lived in some other area but we live in Jerusalem and God's not going to destroy Jerusalem why because he lives here Oh yeah, they might have recognized the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere, but his special presence, the Shekinah, resided above the mercy seat between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, first of the tabernacle and then of the temple. And so they believed that God could not, could not destroy Jerusalem, could not judge them regardless of how disobedient or rebellious they were, because God lived there. Look at Micah. Micah 3, verses 9 and 10. Micah, who, as I said earlier, prophesied at the same time that Isaiah did. Micah 3, 9 reads like this. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent justice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. So in, in violation of God's law, everybody was crooked. The king, the, the political leaders, crooked. The religious leaders, crooked. They abuse people. They engage in violence. They engage in injustice. They engage in bribery. Look at the end of verse 11. Yet they learn, excuse me, yet they lean on Yahweh, saying, is not Yahweh in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. In other words, we can do what we want. We can engage in bribery, total violation of the law. We can engage in injustice, violation of the law. We can abuse people, violation of the law. God is with us. No calamity, no disaster is going to come upon us because God is in our midst. In other words, God is in the temple. They forgot three things. The Israelites forgot three things. Number one, God is bigger than a structure. God is bigger than the sticks and the stones of the temple. God is bigger than this structure, by the way, that we're in this morning. This structure is not God. You can worship God standing in your kitchen. You don't have to be in this structure to worship God. Don't make this structure, as neat as it is, an idol. What happened is the the people of Israel made the temple an idol, and they forgot that God is bigger than a structure. They forgot that God and God alone is sovereign. And number three, they forgot that there's always a reckoning. There's always, always a reckoning. I think we in this culture, we in Christianity, have forgotten those three things as well. What happened with the people in Jerusalem is that in their idolatry they failed to take into account that God could simply leave. Simple. God could simply leave the temple and leave Jerusalem and this is exactly what God did in Ezekiel 10, in Ezekiel 11, in anticipation of the judgment that He would bring. Ezekiel 10, verse 18, then the glory of Yahweh departed from the threshold of the temple. The glory there is Yahweh himself. It's the majesty of Yahweh departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Verse 19, when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight. This is Ezekiel seeing the vision. They rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them because in this vision in Ezekiel 10, God... Is shown as being on his throne, which is also a chariot that has wheels, and the cherubim remember the the cherubim are, are above the Ark of the covenant, the highest of ranking of all the angels. the cherubim are part of this vision, and they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of yahweh 's house, which is a reference to the temple, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. This is a, just a snippet of Ezekiel ten. Where Ezekiel the prophet sees the vision of Yahweh leaving the temple, because in that vision there are idols. They're idols that God says, I'm leaving. The Israelites thought that they had God in a box, that they had God's hands tied. What they forgot is God could simply depart his presence from them. Then he departs not just the temple, he departs Jerusalem itself. Ezekiel eleven twenty-two. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. Again, wheels from the chariot slash throne of God. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory or majesty of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city, the Mount of Olives. It's not an accident that Jesus will return at the Mount of Olives. There. There. But what happened in this imagery, in this vision that that Ezekiel saw, is that he saw God say, let me show you. Let me show you my sovereignty. You think you, you have my hands tied? That's an absurdity. So God simply left. He left the temple, and he left Jerusalem, and he did it in anticipation of the judgment that he would deliver through the Babylonians. A brutal, brutal people a different type of brutality than the Assyrians, but a savagery nonetheless. God used the Babylonians to judge the southern kingdom, Judah. He did the unexpected and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And he followed it with a seven-decade period of exile. Jeremiah prophesied that the Babylonian exile would last for 70 years. Jeremiah 25, verse 8, reads like this. Therefore says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, Because you have not obeyed my words, he's speaking to the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom has long since been destroyed, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north. When the Babylonians mustered their army, they employed mercenaries, mercenaries from the northern areas. You've got Jerusalem to the east of Jerusalem. You've got the desert, the Arabian desert. To the east of that, you have Babylon. Modern day Iraq. And so there's a desert that separates those two. Well, back then, you didn't get an airplane and fly across the desert or a car and drive across the desert. You went around. So the Babylonians, when they went to invade, they went north, above and, and, and west, above the desert, then they came south into Israel. Well when they went north and west, above the desert, they gathered their mercenaries from the northern areas. And then they went south. That's the reference to the tribes of the north. Verse 9, Behold, I will send and take the families of the north, declares Yahweh, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servants. He calls Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan, his servant. I think at some point Nebuchadnezzar actually did believe. But I think here he's an unbeliever. My servant, and I will bring them against this land. The land there is Judah and against its inhabitants, and against all these nations round about. That's Judah's allies. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations, Judah and her allies, will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There's the 70-year exile that you hear of so often. We understand from Second Chronicles that the reason for the 70-year exile was to give the land its Sabbath rest. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, where we'll see the Sabbath rest concept as the basis for the calculation, for God's calculation of the 70-year exile. As you turn there, let me just kind of give you a picture of what Sabbath rest refers to. God's law required Israel to let the land rest every seventh year. Leviticus 25, verses 3 through 5. No planting, no harvesting. You let it rest. God warned Israel not to ignore this requirement. Leviticus 26, verses 33 through 35. But they ignored it because they didn't trust him. I mean, it takes trust, right? This year, we're not going to plant anything. No wheat, no barley, no nothing. We're not going to plant anything. And we're not going to reap anything. Because we're not going to touch the land this year. All our neighbors, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and the Philistine, all the other neighbors, they're planting and reaping. But not us. We're going to do none of it. And we're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to trust that he's going to deliver us. That's what God told them to do. And then he would bless them exponentially in terms of the produce that they would have would be significantly more than their neighboring peoples. But they had to trust him. Because they didn't, there were consequences. Look at Second Chronicles 36, verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Zedekiah was the last of the kings, the last of the Davidic kings in Judah. Verse 12, He did evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for Yahweh. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. That's the idols, the false gods of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, the temple, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So everybody's unfaithful. Everybody's unfaithful. The king's unfaithful. The officials are unfaithful. The priests are unfaithful. The people are unfaithful. Everybody's unfaithful to God. Verse 15... Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place, His dwelling place being the temple and on Jerusalem. How did God have compassion? How did He send messengers? He sent the prophets. He sent Micah. He sent Isaiah. He sent Jeremiah. Another messenger, they mock the messenger. Another prophet, they mock the prophet. Another prophet, they kill the prophet. Another one, another one, another one. Because God's response to rebellion against Him is mercy. And then more rebellion, more mercy. More rebellion, more mercy. Mocking, more mercy. Mocking, more mercy. Mocking, more mercy. His response to people's rejection of Him is mercy. Upon mercy, upon mercy. But then a time comes where he says no more. No more mercy. A time comes when he says mercy's finished. I gave you time upon time upon time. Compassion upon compassion upon compassion. And now is the time of judgment. Verse 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people until there was no remedy. Now the remedy is gone, Which is to say, the judgment was unrevocable. The judgment God would not remove. It was certain and unreversible, verse 17. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. The word Chaldean is an ancient way to say Babylonians. The king of the Chaldeans was Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. God gave Israel into the hand of the Babylonians. That's what this is referring to. Specifically, God gave Judah and Jerusalem into the hand of the Babylonians. Like the Assyrians, the Babylonians were ruthless. For example, what they did to King Zedekiah, the last of the Davidic kings, who we saw here. King Zedekiah, who had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. There were three vassal kings that Nebuchadnezzar put in place. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last of them. Each one of them rebelled. And so finally, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to make an example of Zedekiah. He gets Zedekiah, and he lines up his sons, and he kills each of his sons, and then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing that Zedekiah would ever see, he doesn't kill Zedekiah. He makes him live with the memory of the last thing that he ever saw was the slaughter of his sons because Nebuchadnezzar's point was that no one will rebel against me. He made an example so that no one would challenge him. Look at verse 18. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of Yahweh, that's the temple, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, He brought them all to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took everything. He took all the gold. He took the Ark of the Covenant. He took the golden lampstand. He took the incense, the altar of incense, all the golden utensils. He took them all and God allowed him to take them all to Babylon because judgment had come and judgment was irreversible. Verse 19, then they burned the house of God, the unthinkable. They burned the temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Verse 20. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, so the young. Those who they didn't slaughter, those who they didn't brutalize, they took to Babylon. See, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had two different methods that they used with respect to, to the conquered peoples. The Assyrians would slaughter them and then take the remainder and send them off to other people. They would repopulate other parts of their empire. They'd leave some, but the majority they'd repopulate and then they would take foreign peoples peoples, and sow them into the area that was conquered. That's why Samaria, which we're studying in the book of John, was full of what the Jews would call half-breeds. They're not really Jews there. They're part Jewish but they are part Scythian and part Hittite and part of all of these other regions because the Assyrians would take other peoples and and import them to the area that they conquered. So when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., they brought in other peoples and other religions. The Babylonians did something different when they conquered the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. Because the Babylonians, what they would do, is they would take, they'd slaughter the vast majority, but then they would take the brightest and bring them to the palace in Babylon. So Daniel, his three friends, they're all teenagers, the three friends of Daniel, who we refer to by their Babylonian name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were taken as teenagers, from Jerusalem to the kingdom of Babylon. That's, what, that's what's being referred to in, the, in verse 20. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, until Cyrus came in, the Medo-Persian, and conquered the Babylonians. Verse 21. All of this was to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed, here we go, had enjoyed its sabbaths. Remember, Shabbat. Shabbat in the Hebrew, Sabbath just means rest. Until the land had enjoyed its rests. Plural. All the days of its desolation, it kept Shabbat. It kept rest, Sabbath, until 70 years were complete. This is the 70 years that we've been talking about. This is the 70-year exile. God, in the 70 years, took what was due him he took it the land was to have a rest every seventh year the israelites ignored the provision of god so god took what was his because god will not be mocked the israelites took god's patience as it's all good it's all good they took his the 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 fact that he didn't drop the hammer immediately that he would never drop the hammer this is the brokenness of the human heart. This is why we today in our culture think the same way. We think that God will ne- never drop the hammer because he doesn't drop the hammer immediately. But what happened is God took what was due him with respect to the Sabbath rest, rest because the land was and is God's. And so he forced the, the people of Judah to be gone so that the land would rest. A few Sundays ago, I mentioned that there are different ways to calculate the 70 years, the 70-year exile. Let me show you two of them. One way to calculate it is from first exile to first return. As I mentioned a moment ago, there were three kings, three kings who betrayed, who didn't obey the king of Babylon, who didn't obey Nebuchadnezzar. And so when each one rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came and did a deportation. 605 B.C. was the first of the deportations. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Nebuchadnezzar actually takes the throne of Babylon when his father dies in 6. He's he's, he's Prince Nebuchadnezzar before 605. 605, he's King Nebuchadnezzar. He then, he goes at the Battle of of Carchemish, he defeats the Egyptians as the prince, who's a general. His father dies, he goes back to Babylon in 605, 605 B.C. He takes the throne, and then he returns back to the land of Judah. In 605 B.C., he removes of the, the first of the betraying vassal kings. He remo- removes the first of those kings in 605, and he conquers the city. He creates an exile. He takes part of the people of Jerusalem and he deports them to Babylon. Then again in 597 BC, the second of those vassal kings that I mentioned earlier, Jehoiachin. Same thing happens. Jehoiachin rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't like that. And he returns and and he, he already controls effectively Jerusalem, but Jehoiachin rebelled against him, so Nebuchadnezzar returns and does another exile, the second of the three exiles. And then finally, King Zedekiah in 586 B.C. rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and that is the final, the third and final of the deportations. And so if you do the math, from the first of the deportations in 605 B.C. to the first wave of return of the exiles When the Medo-Persians, when Cyrus the Medo-Persian took Babylon and issued the order that the conquered peoples could return, when the first of those people returned, the first of the Israelites, I mean, they returned in 537 BC. And so if you do that math, that is a 68-year time period. So what we're talking about is not an exact 70-year period. It's an approximation of 70 years. So that's one way to calculate the approximate 70-year period. This is the way that Daniel calculates it, that the prophet Daniel calculates it in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, when he prays to the Lord that the time's up, that the 70 years is up. He calculates it based on the first exile. Now, when you read Daniel 9, verses 1 and 2, you're not going to see a mathematical equation. You're not going to see a bunch of numbers. But it's clear in Daniel 9... When, when Daniel is praying to the Lord, asking the Lord, is it time? Is it time to restore Jerusalem? He refers to the prophecy from Daniel of the 70 years, and so it's clear that he's... That, that, excuse me, the prophecy from uh, Jeremiah of the 70 years. It's clear that Daniel is calculating the 70 years from the first of the exiles in 605. The second way... There are actually a number of ways to, to calculate the, the 70 years, but the second way that I'll show you this morning is not from first exile to first return of the people to Jerusalem, but from the temple destruction to the reconstruction of Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed at the third of the three exiles. Remember, three exiles from Jerusalem, one in 605, one in 597, and the final one, the brutal one, was in 586 BC. That's when the city was totally destroyed and when the temple was burned. Temples destroyed in 586 BC, the temple was reconstructed. You can read about the the reconstruction of the temple in Ezra 6 verse 15 and and in other verses there in Ezra 6. But if you do the math from the destruction of the temple in 586 BC to the reconstruction of the temple in 515 BC, that's 71 years. Again, we're talking about an approximation when we say, or a rough number when we say the 70-year exile. Which method is the proper method to do the calculation? Well, let me say, the first method is the method that the prophet Daniel used. So there's no question that that's a valid method for the calculation. But I think the second method is also valid. Without excluding the way Daniel calculated it. The second method is also valid because it's tied to the temple, God's dwelling place in the land of promise. I think Eugene Merrill says it well when he says, as long as Yahweh had no earthly dwelling place in Jerusalem, his people likewise could never truly be at home. Close quote. So both are legitimate ways of calculating the 70-year exile. Both of these ways, what they evidence is that God's faithful. God is always faithful. He made a promise of a 70-year exile, and He fulfilled that promise. The reason we spent time today in kind of a, a historical setting was to give you some historical footing, some historical bearings here, because I want you to understand how much of a difficult thing it was for the audience of Isaiah to believe him when he writes in Isaiah chapter 64, our passage, and elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, that Jerusalem is going to be burned and that the temple is going to be destroyed. These things are unthinkable to the initial audience of Isaiah, of the prophet. Now, they're clear and conspicuous to the future generations, right? To the generation who was taken in 586, by the Babylonians. They say, well, obviously, Isaiah spoke the truth. And they're clear and conspicuous, the truth of Isaiah's statements about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. It's obvious to the, to the generation that returns from Babylon back to Jerusalem. You see, when they see the promise written by Isaiah in Isaiah 64, I use the word promise carefully. It was a promise that God would destroy Jerusalem. No, it's not a pretty promise. It's a promise of judgment. But when the future generations, like the generation that was taken in exile and the generation that would return from exile, when they read Isaiah 64, they were encouraged. The initial readers, the generation that lived with Isaiah, they read it and they scoffed. They're like, you're crazy, Isaiah. You're, You're crazy. This can't be true. They disbelieved it. But the future generation that looked at it and that understand it and that heard it from Ezra, from Daniel, from Ezekiel, they would have been encouraged by it. Because it would have shown them that God is a God who is sovereign, who makes a promise a century before it happens. The promise is fulfilled, and He's our God. And we're here in Babylon under the boot of the Babylonians' suffering. He promised that it's only going to be 70 years. And the clock is ticking. What I want you to see is the supernatural revelation of God. This is the thing, as I have mentioned before, that drives the liberal theologians bonkers because they don't believe in the supernatural revelation of God. But God, of course, supernaturally revealed to Isaiah well over a century before it would happen that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that the temple itself would be destroyed. When he wrote it, his audience thought he was crazy. The future audience that he had, the future generations, were encouraged by the sovereignty of God, a God who makes promises, makes prophecies, fulfills them, including a prophecy that the clock would end. That the exile would not be forever and that it would only be for 70 years. Next time, we're going to look at our passage, which all we did was read today. But next time, we're going to look at our passage in detail to see what, what Isaiah is praying for as he closes his prayer in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 8 through 12. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who will not be mocked. We thank you that you are a God who is sovereign. We thank you that you fulfill your promises. We look forward with great anticipation to the promises that you have made directly to us. And we take heart and encouragement that you fulfill your promises consistently, methodically throughout the course of human history. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.